On June 1st, 1660, in Boston, Massachusetts, Mary Dyer became the third person, and infamously the only woman, to be executed for the crime of being a Quaker. This was something that even John Endicott hesitated to do. He'd gone so far as to commute her sentence once before, and he gave her an opportunity to escape punishment yet again. But she refused. So, the 49-year-old wife and mother was marched to the gallows, surrounded by drums loud enough that no one could hear her speak. And her body was left hanging for two days afterward. The question is why? Why? Of all the religious dissidents in 17th century New England, would Quakers be the ones singled out for death? So feared that drums were used to drown out their last words. Last episode, we referenced an interpretation of two Bermuda witch trials as being motivated more by fear that the women were Quakers than that they were witches. And the same question arises. We're going to answer it today, and as we answer it, the question of how the movement changed will arise, and we're going to answer that too. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsalvola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. When we hear about Quakers, even those of us with a vague familiarity with the term likely envision quiet, anti-slavery pacifists and industrialists who did things like reducing worker exploitation. The first couple decades of the Quakers' existence, though, had a significantly different character and history. Different enough to make them the most feared radicals in a decade characterized by unchecked radicalism, emerging out of the ashes of war-torn England with an attitude that came from the circumstances. In addition to this, or perhaps because of it, early Quakerism was also one of the fastest spreading denominations ever, and that certainly didn't help matters. Quakerism had emerged in 1652, which made the movement a relative latecomer to the radical scene. This was a time, as we've referenced time and again, in which radicalism was characterized and even defined by intense millenarian beliefs. Radical Puritans believed that Christ's return was imminent, and most of them believed that their own actions would determine the timing of his coming. And looking at the state of the world, it was easy to want it to come as soon as possible. Quakers were no different. In fact, they were among the most intensely focused groups on this concept. Their focus on prophecy, miracles, and other supernatural things has led people to focus on mysticism as the root of Quakerism, but in reality it was simply a logical extension of the ideas which were already common among British Puritans. So going into 1652, 
there were congregationalists and levelers and diggers and antinomians. And more radical still, there were the Baptists and the Deists. There were the Fifth Monarchists. And further still, there were the Familists, Ranters, and Seekers. These last three groups differed slightly from each other, but they were united in the adamant belief that their inner feelings and understandings were far more important in reaching the truth than the Bible was, and that the church was worthless and even actively harmful. Christ, they said, was resurrected in the hearts of believers, so the ideas that they had carried far more weight than anything else could. And with this belief, you got some seriously weird behavior. And that actually brings me to an important little point, which is that this episode gets a little more inappropriate than most on this show. It's not too bad, but fair warning, I just couldn't really get around it today. Among that weird behavior... You had free love communes saying that salvation absolved them of all guilt and rules and restored them to the pre-fall state of Adam and Eve. Some people denied the existence of heaven and hell or said that the Bible was outright untrue as well as embracing pantheism and even atheism, ironically. Members of these groups were known for swearing getting drunk, committing adultery, and public nudity. Streaking wasn't just some joke. It was a form of religious agitation. The demeanor of familists and ranters ranged from subdued, depressed nihilism to manic hedonism, and many alternated between the two extremes. And these groups followed the weirdest sorts of people. There were two merchants who went around London saying that they were the prophets spoken of in the book of Revelation, and people believed them. Another popular figure said that adultery was impossible because all women were the same person. There truly is no weird like 17th century weird. And perhaps my most important personal belief when interpreting history is that people don't fundamentally change, so the best starting point for understanding anything is to try to understand people as being fundamentally like us, just reacting to different circumstances. As such, I really try to avoid looking at some people as smarter or more enlightened than others, either within a single time period or across time periods and to try to understand people through that lens, even if they're doing things that are almost incomprehensibly weird or evil. But my goodness, sometimes they make that tricky. The thing is, though, that for all the overwhelmingly weird behavior, these were overwhelmingly weird times. In the previous hundred years, there had been wars, diseases, failed harvests, comets, a mini-ice age, and the complete overturning of the social order. As part of that overturning, people had been set free to interpret the Bible for themselves for the first time ever. And this was a century of too few pastors, so people had been left to their own devices in those interpretations. 
and combined with those external pressures. People knew not to be Catholic, but they didn't know what to be instead. And then, to push everything over the edge, there had been a decade of civil war, which refused to end, got way more extreme than anyone could have imagined, had no historical precedent, and left the country in absolute shambles. A lot of people have compared the emergence of these radical religious movements to the radical political movements of the 1960s, and it's definitely a logical place for your mind to go when you read about them. When Quakers emerged, led by George Fox and John Naylor, they pretty much absorbed most of these other movements. They'd been around for years without any discernible change, and the Quakers were new and intensely charismatic. The first converts had been convinced, as they called it, with a couple of speeches by Fox, one of which discussed his vision of a great people to be gathered at Pendle Hill, and another which worked to turn a large group of Yorkshire seekers into finders. In that one, he told the seekers not to look for a prophet to lead them, but to look to the Christ within, to that light which the Gospel of John says enlightens every person who comes into the world. And from there, the movement spread quickly, becoming a major presence in every region of England, Scotland, and Wales within two years. It was an easy jump for everyone from the levelers and diggers to the ranters to join this new movement. And within Quakerism, the most radical ideas could be exchanged among groups and combined to form a movement which embraced pretty much all of them. That's one reason that the Quakers spread so very, very fast. But it also meant that there was a good deal of ideological diversity within the movement. For a while, this diversity was so extreme that Quaker beliefs consisted of a series of negative statements more than anything. They didn't deny the existence of God or a historical Christ, nor of heaven or hell, nor did they believe that the people could attain perfection on earth. But at the same time, there were plenty of Quakers who didn't fit this most basic of descriptions. As a group, though, they practiced healings, did nothing structured or formal, opposed singing psalms as a manner of worship, and then they did things like going naked for a sign, which was again practiced by all manner of Quakers. And it was exactly what it sounds like. The Lord made one to go naked among you, said Fox, a figure of thy nakedness and of your nakedness, and as a sign amongst you before your destruction cometh, that you might see that you were naked and not covered with the truth. So people would take off their clothes, proclaim some aspect of Quaker doctrine, and tell people to repent. They did it in markets, they did it in chapels, and at the height of the practice, groups of naked Quakers would swarm the Yorkshire Dales. So, in one story, one of these people 
walked naked through the market square, stood right at the base of the town cross, and started preaching. In another, a man ran through the town with nothing but his shirt on. And in another, a woman exposed herself in a church while confronting the preacher. One man named William Simpson spent three years touring England and doing this. And politically, they were no less controversial or inflammatory. Fox said of the levelers, You had a flash in your mind, a simplicity, but your minds run into the earth and are smothered by it, and so get caught up into presumption. They issued political demands, such as one for annual parliaments, and served in office. They published tracts, which did seem to advocate for leveler ideas, though these ideas weren't endorsed by the movement as a whole. And they spoke as strongly as anyone against the idea of restoring the English monarchy. Going further, the complete abolition of wealth, the idea that Parliament was as repressive as the king, and the complete abolition of class were ideas that had gained at least some traction within the Quaker movement. Over the course of time, for both political and religious reasons, which were intertwined in the 17th century anyway, plenty of Quakers also started to refuse to remove their hats in front of social superiors or to use formal language to address them. There's no better example of Quaker diversity, though, than the differences between Naylor and Fox, who are both co-leaders of Quakerism and also kind of rivals. Both believed in millenarianism, prophecy, egalitarianism, and a spirit-led religion rather than one which was either doctrinal or liturgical. But Fox was from an affluent artisan family while Naylor had been a farmer. Fox used his education and articulateness to attract people while Naylor emphasized his simple roots, dressing like a farmer and harshly denouncing the rich. Fox was devoted to the prophecies of Revelation, but Naylor made him look restrained by comparison. Fox rejected the practices of the ranters, while Naylor embraced them wholeheartedly. So well before the Quakers got popular, Fox emphasized that no one could reach the righteousness and holiness of pre-fall Adam in this life. And Naylor didn't so much, even after the people with those beliefs became Quakers. Fox had been the one to get the ball rolling, but for a while, Naylor was even more prominent. The ranters who were convinced by Quakerism, joined Naylor's followers, while people like William Penn followed Fox. And in addition to all of this diversity and all of this variation, this was a time in which propaganda was new and false accusations had become the norm rather than the exception. So rumors started to spread and worsen the worries about Quakerism that already existed. Quakers, their opponents said, denied the Trinity, denied the scriptures as the word of God, and denied their own sin. 
they would have no law but their lusts, no heaven nor glory but here, and no sin but what men fancied to be so. They were nothing less than ranters with a new name to avoid the stigma of their old one, and who had learned to be just a tiny bit more respectable in some public situations. Quakerism is become the common sink of them all. Anabaptists, Antinomians, Sicinians, Familists, Libertines, Atheists, Ranters, Diggers, and the rest. And they believed that any extreme views that the movement didn't openly embrace, it was teaching in secret. And the thing is, there were absolutely Quakers who fit these descriptions. Fox could deny it, could try his best to draw a solid line dividing the Quakers from the ranters and making the movement even borderline respectable, but it was clearly true, and Naylor didn't even bother to deny it. So one example of a relatively extreme but highly publicized action of a Quaker was when a man walked into the lobby of the House of Commons in 1654, drew a sword, and burned a Bible because it deceived the people, and then proceeded to refer to himself as the King of the Jews, which, for those of you who aren't religiously inclined, is a term which refers to Jesus in the Bible. So that just did not go over well. And speaking of swords, at this point in time, Quakers were assuredly not pacifists either. A huge percentage of them had served in the army in recent wars, which makes sense because the army had been the place in which the radical ideas had first become prominent. And that was even worse because then the people also saw this gigantic and rapidly growing group of people, many of whom were soldiers, expressing dissatisfaction with the current state of affairs, and they started to think of them as a potential new army, ready to raise up yet another war, which was overwhelmingly most people's biggest fear. But one thing that was fundamental to this early Quaker movement, and which made enemies even disregarding what they believed or variations or perceptions, is that the entire movement was built on a foundation of confronting preachers in their own churches. Even preachers who had a live-and-let-live attitude toward their cause quickly turned against them when people burst into their congregations, picking apart their sermons and interrogating them in an attempt to turn their parishioners against them. And like I said, this was both Fox and Naylor and their followers on both sides of the Atlantic. This was almost the defining character of Quakerism in these early years. For everything else that varied and was decentralized and completely different from person to person and region to region, this was the same. This was what Quakerism was. This was the fundamental the defining trait of Quakerism, and the thing that people thought about when they thought about Quakers. So with all of this combined, it's a lot easier to see why Quakerism was so hated and feared at this time. 
and Fox in 1654 was arrested under suspicion of plotting against the government, but Cromwell supported him. And Naylor said the Quakers never plotted against the magistrates, but he also admitted that he preached that magistrates weren't to be obeyed as a rule. So when Quaker preachers were considered sowers of sedition and subverters of laws, they pretty much admitted that this was the case. In 1655, Quakers were labeled as the biggest enemy left in England, having principles which were incompatible with either civil government or army discipline. There was an event, though, which caused the Quaker movement to rein itself in a little bit, at least temporarily. It put a temporary stop to going naked for a sign, while causing a lot of Quakers to rethink their actions and beliefs a little bit. It happened in Bristol, which was the home of a large and growing Quaker community, the community, in fact, which sent most of the Quakers who ended up in the Americas. And there, in 1656, Naylor rode a donkey into the city with women laying palms before him, clearly recreating the scene of Christ's entry into Jerusalem before his crucifixion. Naylor talked about the return of Christ, and he preached that it was possible for man to achieve Christ's perfection and perform his works. There had been a lot of individual Quakers whipped in the past for claiming relation to Jesus in some way or another, but this was different. This was one of the leaders of this massive, scary movement, seemingly equating himself to Jesus And that was too much. It was too blasphemous, too ranter, and from someone too influential to let this go. At this point, some people called for the death penalty. But instead, authorities imprisoned, flogged, and branded him. It was still a brutal affair, but Naylor survived and was released a few months later. And after that, he did back off of it, even correcting his ranter followers in a way that he never had before. And more important than that, Naylor's supporters started to take a second look at their own beliefs and behaviors. His excesses showed the dangers of a purely spirit-led movement. If there was nothing tangible to tell you, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea, then clearly even the best and the brightest could go astray. So Quakers stopped being so outlandish and started moderating their actions a little bit. With everything we've just discussed, it's worth re-examining that assertion about the two witches in Bermuda potentially being Quakers. It becomes very clear why a colony as fundamentally unstable as Bermuda would be afraid of a force that was as fundamentally destabilizing as the Quakers. At this point, there was no death penalty for Quakers, nor any legal precedent for keeping them out, so conflating them with witches 
wouldn't be the worst strategy for intimidating and keeping them away. Within a couple years of their foundation, Quakers had sent missionaries everywhere from Ireland to Rome to India, and in 1655, they went to Barbados. Barbados had always been and been known as a more tolerant sort of place than most with a specific tolerance for those radical movements that had always made New Englanders uneasy. Winthrop had called the island overrun with familists just a few years before, so this was a great place to start. And it was also extravagantly wealthy, which was nice. So, some Bristol Quakers went in 1655, most notably a woman named Mary Fisher, and in 1656, Henry Fell of Kent followed them. He'd been a minister for the previous three years, had written unpublished pamphlets, and would travel the world for the cause, but his biggest project was Barbados. He settled there, getting involved with commerce, and even buying a ship to trade with New England. He arrived in October, and at first he didn't have much luck. The people were rough and tumble, and the Anglican ministers actively opposed him. After traveling the island with Fisher convert John Rouse for a few months, though, he had a small group of converts. And these converts included some of the leading citizens of the island like Lewis Morris. Lewis Morris, that old indentured servant turned privateer from our Providence Island story. Morris ended up being the person at whose house the Quakers met, and he protected Fell, even having people arrested for attacking him. Governor Searle was sympathetic to the cause too, and in this positive environment, After the first few converts, there was a flood. By 1670, Barbados had six times the rate of Quakerism that England had. And Barbados became their base to travel the rest of America, which they did as quickly as they evangelized everywhere else. By 1657, Quakers had gone everywhere from Newfoundland to Suriname. The first ministers in Suriname found themselves imprisoned for six weeks, after which they left, and Fell himself went to Suriname a year later. His trip was delayed by the fact that he had been captured by Spanish sailors and sent to Spain as a prisoner. But he had escaped, traveled through France, and sailed to England. And a month after reaching England, he had gone back to Barbados, and from there to Suriname. He felt like the people in Suriname were more wicked than anywhere else in the English-speaking world, to the point that it had hardened the hearts of the Indians to the idea of God. Fell's books were burned, his group was put in the stocks and imprisoned with threats of whipping that never materialized, and then they were put on a ship and sent back to Barbados. Quakers who reached the Chesapeake were also banished, imprisoned, and whipped, but it's extremely difficult to figure out the details of their time there. Quakers didn't keep good records, and 
they didn't even differentiate between Maryland and Virginia in the records they did keep, referring to everything that was owned by the old Virginia Company of London as Virginia. We do know that a lot of the named converts to Quakerism were Virginia Puritans who had been exiled to Maryland, and that Providence slash Anne Arundel and Kent Island were key locations for the Quaker movement in the area, along with other settlements on the eastern shore. And we know that some of the Quakers' most intense opponents fit the same description. We also know that whatever the details, Quakerism did emerge as one of the dominant denominations in Maryland, so we can venture a guess that most of the Quaker activity was concentrated in the Puritan areas of Maryland, and that most of the persecution came from Maryland's Puritan government, but we really can't tell exactly. After the Chesapeake, though, Quakers sailed to New England, and it was there that they would face the most intense persecution of anywhere. They didn't even get along well in Providence and Rhode Island. They weren't persecuted there, nor were there legal barriers to their participating in government, so it was a very important place for them, but they weren't particularly liked in large part because they were immediately pulled into pre-existing economic conflicts that had nothing to do with religion. A man named William Harris had been in a land dispute with Roger Williams, and he converted to Quakerism in order to bring the weight of the organization behind him. This caused problems. Quakers and Baptists, the colony's two main religious groups, also lobbed accusations at each other of threatening liberty. Quakers pointed to Baptists' organization and structure to support their argument, while Baptists highlighted the Quakers' lack of distinction between religious and civil liberty, especially when coupled with their utter reliance on personal revelation. So, the Baptists argued, Anyone could say that God told them something and use that as an excuse to take away someone else's rights, which was absolutely horrifying. But whether they were liked or controversial there, thanks to its tolerant nature, Rhode Island became the base for Quaker movement in New England. From there, they went to Martha's Vineyard and confronted a man trying to preach to a group of Wampanoag Christians, again in front of his congregation. After decades of promises, New Englanders had actually sent evangelists out to preach to the Indians, and now Quakers were confronting and arguing with these very evangelists. The English kicked them out of Martha's Vineyard. Indian Christians took care of them, and then allowed them to go on their way. It was Massachusetts, though, that was the biggest and strongest colony in New England, and therefore, it was the core of Massachusetts that was Quakers' main focus. And 35 Quakers went to Massachusetts towns between 1656 and 1659. There, and in New Haven, there were whippings, 
ear croppings, stocks, irons, and floggings, and when that wasn't enough to deter the influx, a law was passed banishing Quakers on pain of death. It was the only such law in the English-speaking world. And within a year, this law had led to three executions. Two of these, William Robinson and Marmaduke Stevenson, were men who had come from England as Quaker missionaries, but the third was a woman who had lived in New England since 1635. This, to get back to the beginning of the episode, was Mary Dyer. She had been one of Anne Hutchinson's closest followers and associates, the woman who had comforted her after her trial. Mary and her husband had been known as religious radicals, and they had relocated to Providence after the antinomian controversy. They visited England not too long before, and there Mary had converted to Quakerism. She stayed in England to learn more while her husband returned to America, and when she followed him, she was ready to give anything for the cause. They landed in Boston, and Mary returned to her family in Providence, while Robinson and Stevenson stayed in Massachusetts and were arrested. When she heard about this, Dyer returned to Massachusetts and was also thrown in jail with them for two months. The three were banished again, but the situation unfolded exactly the same way. Robinson and Stevenson stayed, Dyer went to Rhode Island, and then she returned when they were arrested. This time, though, seeing that things weren't changing, the three were sentenced to death for having refused to stay out of Massachusetts. On October 27, 1659, the three Quakers were led to the scaffold, surrounded by an armed band and drums beating to drown out any last words that they might use to convert people. The men were executed first, while Dyer was forced to watch, and then she stepped onto the ladder, and a rope was placed around her neck, too. But at the last minute, someone shouted to stop, for she was reprieved. She said she was willing to die, but the official simply carried her back to the Rhode Island border and left her there. Her family had pleaded for her life, and Endicott and other colony officials really didn't want to execute a woman who wasn't, you know, a witch or a murderer or something. Dyer had a very respectable demeanor, too, which could make her more sympathetic in the eyes of the crowd, and could easily turn her into a martyr for the Quaker cause. And Dyer probably saw the exact same possibility herself. If she could be a martyr and turn popular sentiment against the harshest law against Quakerism in the English-speaking world, it would free Quakers to go to New England and help her cause more than anything else that she could do. She stayed in Providence in Long Island over winter, but the next spring, Dyer again returned to Massachusetts. And this time, Endicott saw no alternative but to execute her. 
she would keep returning as long as she was alive to convert and to proselytize. And if the general court didn't stop her, they wouldn't be able to stop the other Quakers who would inevitably follow. She was sentenced to death again, marched to the scaffold surrounded by militia and drums, given a chance to recant, refused, and this time she was hanged. Her body was left up for two days, and the general court called it a flag for others to take example by. But she did become a martyr. People didn't like seeing a woman executed for something like that. And with the high rate of women missionaries in Quakerism, this was going to be an insurmountable problem. After Mary Dyer, only one man was executed for his Quaker proselytizing. The law was rolled back, and Dyer became a rather iconic figure within the history of New England. Like I said, though, the question raised by our discussion to this point is how exactly the Quaker movement changed. And the answer to that question involves things that we've alluded to but not yet openly discussed. In short, it was the Restoration. The restoration of Charles II to the English throne in 1660 undid Cromwell's Commonwealth experiment. This was the event which brought back the monarchy which still exists in England today. We'll get into the hows and the whys later, but Cromwell had died in 1658, and by 1660, pretty much everyone was ready to bring back the king. The exception to that, though, was the people who still held on to their millenarian hopes. For them, the restoration was unthinkable, because it was a pretty clear signal that the millennial reign of the saints wasn't starting. Christ wasn't returning just yet. The world would continue in all of its scary, painful, unpredictable everything. And this was a huge thing to process. If you've been listening, you know this. If you haven't, I'd suggest you go back and listen to episode 18 of this series to get an idea. People had given up so much and accepted so much that they didn't understand or really approve of on the sole premise. No, not premise. Promise that Christ's return would be the reward. And now they had to face the fact that this wasn't the case. This dilemma, to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, would lead to a whole new wave of witch trials and even contribute at least somewhat to the Salem witch trials years later. It would also lead another radical movement led by a former New Englander to revolt Thomas Venner's fifth monarchists would not be successful in their rebellion, but their rebellion would indirectly force the Quakers to finalize some decisions. The Quaker movement had already started to fragment, and Fox had become the central figure after Naylor's Bristol incident. And after he'd been discredited, 
a lot of the ranchers who had joined the Quakers had either conformed to Fox's ideas or fallen away. Fox would remain the leader of the Quaker movement and the man who would define its history. In order to avoid being blamed for the Fifth Monarchist Revolt, something which was absolutely likely to happen given the highly visible, militant, and controversial nature of the Quaker movement, Fox made a declaration of absolute pacifism in January of 1661. He hoped that this would protect the Quakers from being arrested or charged with sedition. Many Quakers interpreted his proclamation as also forbidding them from holding either civil or military office in any capacity, and Fox approved of this interpretation. Some continued to serve in the military, but the movement as a whole had been redefined as a purely pacifist one. More fundamentally, though, if the world was going to last longer than a couple more years, Quakerism needed to either disappear or adopt a long-term strategy. Up until the Restoration, Quakerism had existed as a visceral, undefined movement of purest radicalism and impulse, but it could only do that because it expected to be around for just a few years before the world entered into a new age. Now, it was clear that the world would be around for a bit longer than that, so Fox had to either give up on Quakerism altogether or redefine it in a way that would allow it to persist. And this made him the man responsible for turning Quakerism into a movement that could survive in the long term. So Fox came up with a meeting structure that would ensure that the movement could remain connected and united. Some actual tangible agreements on good and lawful behavior also had to be reached. Simply letting people go with their gut instincts on everything all the time was not a sustainable approach. So he led the formulation of those too. Whatever ranchers remained were now pushed out for good, in favor of a milder and more moderate movement. Fox's reforms did prompt a series of splits within the movement, and most notable among these was one led by John Parrott, who emerged as Naylor's de facto successor. Naylor's ranter and other followers who had had no one to follow after Fox took over did now. Parrott said that hats must be worn during prayer and denied all human arrangements for worship, even meeting at prearranged times and places. He openly said that he had far more in common with the seekers and others than he did with those who now called themselves Quakers. Parrott ended up being exiled to Barbados, where he lived in 1665, and in response to the split that he created and other splits, Fox tightened the Society of Friends even more, creating what disappointed opponents saw as a hierarchical structure no different from any other church. Quakerism 
became a fundamentally normal denomination with a strong ideological foundation and a few quirky practices that harkened back to its radical past. There would be no more going naked for a sign, Quakers would be quiet types of people, and Fox wrote a history both emphasizing the parts of the Quaker stories which would lead you to believe that that had always been the case, and encouraging Quakers to accept the new version of their beloved religion. Fox himself visited America at around this time. So that's the origin of Quakerism, and it's how they came to be persecuted and how they came to be the denomination that we know today. And Fox's second-in-command, his likely successor, was a man who we will definitely be hearing more about in our story. And his name was William Penn. In fact, we're going to hear more about Penn next episode when he leads the Western design. Music